This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. For more book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page and on Twitter at burn555555. Today, I am interviewing Deping Chen. Deping is a fiction writer and journalist whose work has been published in The New Yorker, Granta, and Tin House. She is a Wall Street Journal correspondent in Philadelphia who has previously been based in Beijing and Hong Kong. She has reported on rice cookers and wrongful convictions, gotten hung up on by Edward Snowden, and eaten more robot-cooked noodles than she can count. Today, we are talking about her new short story collection, Land of Big Numbers. We had a couple of small connection issues, which impacts the sound occasionally. I apologize in advance, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Ping. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing okay, too. I'm really excited to talk about Land of Big Numbers. Just such a beautiful, beautiful book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, why don't we start out with you just talking a little bit about what Land of Big Numbers is about? Sure. So I wrote Land of Big Numbers when I was living in Beijing as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And these stories are, in so many ways, the parts of China that I couldn't necessarily put into news stories. They're stories of families, lovers, people searching for meaning, trying to find their place in the world when they're living in a society where so often circumstances can feel outside their control. Of course, it's a collection of short stories. And I think adding them up, the, the idea is to really offer a window into a country that is so much in the headlines, but I think is, is so hard to really feel like you can access in a more human way. Well, and it's such a large country. And so I think different parts of the country are going to be very different, just like different parts of the United States are very different. Your story was a great glimpse into various places in China. Yeah, no, they, they certainly they span from the rural countryside, where we meet an elderly farmer trying to build an airplane to more urban stories of youth striving and, and trying to, to get by. And yeah, it's it's an incredibly diverse place. And, and I think the book evokes that. No, I think it definitely reflects that. And I, I liked that because I felt it definitely gave a glimpse into various places, not just Beijing. I was going to ask you what your favorite story was in the book. And you mentioned one of mine. So I'm curious to hear what your favorite was. Well, it was actually the story that I just referenced about an elderly farmer in rural China who decides towards the end of his life that he wants to build an airplane, even though he doesn't know how to fly. And it's one, it's it's sort of, it's a tender, quiet story. It's one that I put a lot of heart and love into. And one, I think that sort of encapsulates some of the more surprising details that you'll find scattered throughout the books that things like, for example, funeral strippers and other surprising details like robots who cook noodles, um, something else that I was really delighted to find a place for. Yeah, just a lot of sort of details like that that are some of the surprising and fun elements that I ran into in my own life in China and wanted to try and evoke in this book. Well, that one and Field Notes on a Marriage were my two favorites. I mean, I love them all, but those two have stayed with me the longest, and I find I still think about them the most regularly. Oh, wow. That's that's so nice to hear. The other one that was very interesting to me is the train station story. That is so thought-provoking. Oh, uh, yeah. It was... It was one of the rare stories in the book. I mean, so often this, the, the stories would start with sort of a stray impulse or idea. And in, in some ways, that story, Gubeko Spirit, the genesis was exactly that. I was sitting on a train in Beijing and looking around and thinking, what would happen 
I have sometimes a sort of apocalyptic I think, turn of mind. And I think, well, what if we just got stuck for months? What would happen? What kind of societies would form? Who would survive? Who would thrive? Like what sort of alliances would be made? And that turned into the story, Kubeko Spirit, which you mentioned, which is in some ways was inspired by just that sort of straight impulse, but also is intended to be kind of a broader meditation on what it's like to live in a society when your own choices are stripped away from you and just the very almost seductive experience of surrendering control. And I don't want to give too many spoilers, but yes, that's, that was one story I really enjoyed writing as well. That was one of the themes that was present throughout your book, was living in a repressive society who monitors what you're doing, how you're behaving. And so I thought that story just crystallized it. That was something that I was really trying to conjure up in that story was, I think so often when people think of China, again, it it is at this grand macro scale. You think of it as sort of this bleak 1984. And of course, there are aspects of life in the country that are very dark. But I think more broadly, what that story evokes, so it's a group of communities who get stuck on a subway platform for months, and they're denied official permission to leave for this bureaucratic sort of reason. And they end up actually forming their own sort of cozy community and loving it and becoming feted as heroes by the state media and becoming sort of the center of propaganda. It's a story that is in so many ways, yeah, intended to evoke sort of the fact that when we think of repression and we think of government surveillance control, it can sometimes be feel heavy the way that I think from a distance we imagine it. And then up close, it also, as these people in the story experience, can feel so much softer and more seductive. They are treated to all kinds of donations from well-meaning volunteers and sent food and they sit around and watch TV shows, and they grow, again, really comfortable such that they don't ultimately even want to leave. They form such a tight-knit community. I mean, groups of them. But I just thought it was fascinating in the food issues and just, yes, how they became almost sort of these pulp culture phenomenons. I think in the writing of that story, by the end of it, I really did feel a sympathy for the characters who wanted to stay because they did manage to create the sense of society and purpose for themselves, even though the reader can see quite clearly that it's it's absurd and it's it's built in so many ways on the most hollow of premises and the most ridiculous kinds of strictures that the government has placed on them, but they're happy. And like you said, maybe they've found a purpose. And so that really they feel like this is a better deal for them than if they were living by themselves in their apartment somewhere. Yeah. And there's a there's also an echo of some of the kind of propaganda messages that you'll hear in China so often, which is when they're in the, they're in the subway tunnel far underground, cut off from a room, but they're saying, well, here, there's no crime. We're safe. We're taken care of. We have food. We have entertainment. We have all we need. We don't need to be more free than that. Well, do you have other themes that you feel are present throughout the book? I think the whole, I mean, part of what the book is trying to evoke is, again, the sense of what is it like to live in a society where so many of your choices are constrained? And how do you deal and reckon with that? And as an aside, I think, obviously, those are questions that are relevant in China. But I think also, since returning to the U.S., feel quite resonant here as well, especially given the events of the past year, as an aside as well. (laughs) And I thought that was a very interesting perspective as I was reading it. I was thinking, huh, 
<laughs> this is not only about China, but could be about here or any number of other places lately. And that's what, so the first story that starts the collection, Lulu, is really about trying to grapple with that, right? Living in a society where you feel like you don't necessarily have a lot of options. And at the same time, you see, you can see around you that there's so much injustice and so much a sense of cruelty, frankly, whether it's actions by the government or just the broader sorts of inequities of society. And so that story traces the path of a pair of twins, one who ends up becoming an online dissident and one who ends up becoming a very successful professional video gamer. You asked, what are some of the other themes? That story, to me, the themes of that story are so much at the heart of the book, right? Like, what does it mean to be a good person in those situations? How do you try and how do you respond? And and what is what is it like to live in a world where that there is that duality, right? When you yourself are comfortable, but at the same time, you're surrounded by such injustices and such cruelty. And in that story, the two siblings decide to take very different paths in which one is rewarded and one is punished. And it's a story that I found really heartbreaking to write. And in some ways, again, is, is a story that is so particular to China, of course, given the kinds of political repression that those characters are exposed to. But of, of course, I think especially increasingly in the past year and some of the conversations we've been having here in the States, I think is, is one that has echoes for really any country. Well, I thought a lot about Lulu when I was done with your book too, because I think you find there are people sometimes whose passion or sense of, I don't know, justice, morality, whatever it is that guides them, sort of takes over their life. And that is kind of almost the only thing they can do. And she very much, I felt, represented that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a reporter in China, you would meet those people and just be astounded by them, by their their bravery, their grace. And at the same time, so often when you would meet those people, you would be meeting them towards the end of their story when they'd already aroused the state's wrath and they were being imprisoned. And the family members are the ones that are left behind. And so, yeah, that that experience of talking to a number of family members in this situation really prompted me to to want to just unspool the narrative a little bit and go backwards and say, okay, what was you know what is it like to be a family member seeing someone you love on such a dangerous path, what they're doing may not unlikely will not yield any result. Lulu's boyfriend was an interesting character, and I think he understood how passionate and driven she was about her cause, I guess is what you'd call it. More so certainly than Lulu's parents, of course, who had sacrificed so much and put so much faith in their daughter, who was brilliant and in their eyes decided to throw it all away for a lost cause. And in yes, her boyfriend did have a greater understanding, but even at the end of the day, he hit his own limits too, as we see. Absolutely. And you can understand her parents' concern because I'm sure they were a little concerned about reprisal too. Certainly reprisal and just a feeling of having the rug sort of jerked out from under them. Here was a young woman who was hitting all her marks in incredibly competitive circumstances, right? Scoring highly on the high school exams and for them feeling so much like their future security was bound up in this young woman with so much promise and to see her turn her back in some ways on them for the greater good in her mind which is why I think at some point there's a scene when they're on the plane coming back after they've seen their daughter being sentenced and it's such a heartbreaking moment and in some ways for them the mother just she's she's already at that point so lost in trying to process what's happened and the closure she finds some comfort there 
as, as sad as that is, some some relief almost in knowing that, okay, her daughter has walked to the end of this path and now she's in prison. Well, and to me, that part of the story, Lulu and her parents, really kind of evoked a much broader theme because I think as a parent of three teenagers, children are going to do whatever they want to do and they're going to go down whatever path they want. And I think that's such a common story. Children disappointing their parents or going a different path or doing something that is totally outside the realm of what parents envisioned for them. So I just thought that part will probably resonate with everyone wherever you're a parent. Yeah. And we see that those sorts of intergenerational frictions coming up in other stories too, right? In the title story, Land of Big Numbers, it's a story of a young man, a government bureaucrat who ends up embezzling from his job in order to invest in the stock market. And he's fueled by this sense of very masculine sort of pride and desire to prove himself and be somebody, and also as well the desire to not be his father. You see different ways that the, the parent-child sort of conflict there comes through, right? On the one hand, you see the parents and Lulu, right, looking at their daughter, thinking, my God, what kinds of choices have you made? And in the case of Land of Big Numbers, you have that character looking at his father and actually saying, look, I'm somebody who wants to make it and be someone. And by contrast, I look at you as sort of a remnant of an older, sadder, or poorer generation. I look down upon you. I, I ultimately feel like you've given up in some ways. And yeah, there's, there's, Absolutely, I think judgment on both sides and a misunderstanding, a degree of misunderstanding on both sides. And definitely, I think you're absolutely right. Something that people, that is, is very relatable, no, no matter the cultural context. Well, and the father tried to warn him repeatedly, and he just kept poo-pooing it, thinking, my father's out of touch. He's an older generation. He doesn't know anything. You just knew that was not going to go the way that the son wanted it to. But talking about Land of Big Numbers, I am such a title and cover person. So I would love to hear how you decided that Land of Big Numbers would be the title, and then I want to talk about your gorgeous cover. Yes. So I'm really bad at titles. So many of these stories had to get retailed and retitled. Land of Big Numbers, though, was one that seemed to fit from the start because in some ways the title gestures at, there's such a trope, right, of China being this gargantuan abstract place. The title is intended to poke a little bit of fun at that. I will also say that I grew up reading a lot of fantasy books when I was a kid. The Land of Oz figured really prominently in my childhood. Of course, China was the farthest away I ever got. I think there, there's a little bit of that element too, that feeling of just, just conjuring up some of that feeling as well in the title. The cover is something that I was anxious about long before publication. I told my publisher I was I just really didn't want to see anything like a panda or a fortune cookie or God forbid a dragon. Nothing too heavy-handed or, or crude like that. And, and fortunately, we were very receptive to those comments. And I think the cover is beautiful. And I think it really does a good job of evoking what the collection is trying to do and offer this sort of layered portrait that is shot through with color, right, and life, and as well as some of the more textured darkness that you also find in, in some of the stories. Well, I think they did a great job, and I'm glad you like it. And I feel like anybody that sees it will immediately know it's your book and be very eager to read it. Oh, thank you. I hope so. <laughs> well, I'd love to talk a little bit about what it was like being a reporter in China. Yeah. What can I tell you? Well, how long were you there working? And what surprised you the most and what surprised you the least? I had lived in China before being a reporter, but I started as a reporter first in Hong Kong with the journal in 2012, and then moved to Beijing in 2014. And I was there for four years. And I just felt like it was such a privilege to be there as a reporter. It's a place where you are very much conscious at all times that 
the people who are speaking to you are, are so often taking tremendous risks, right? And putting themselves, accepting that, that level of danger and speaking to foreign media, something that has become increasingly just a sensitive thing to do in recent years and over the time that I was there. And so that was absolutely something that surprised me was the willingness of some people to really share their stories and speak out. It just left a mark on me. The people that I met and their stories are some that I am always going to carry with me. And in many ways, some of the stories in this book are intended sort of as a tribute as well. What didn't surprise me, that's hard. As a reporter, just walking down the street, opening up a newspaper, you would just have one conversation with someone. There was just always a feeling of China being this ever-changing place that you, or at least I felt so much like I was never doing enough. And so much also of what I was seeing and hearing from people, I mean, they may be details of families, of, of society, little moments of, of life that you see in stories like Flying Machine on the start of that farmer building an airplane that are true and just fascinating. We'd read, you would read, like, for example, the, the headline that inspired that story of, was, again, grounded in something very real of um, a farmer in the countryside building an airplane. plane, And that just, it's not something that was a news story, but it just captured me. I mean, you would just think, my God, like, I want to read that story. I want to know who this this guy is. And yeah, as a reporter, you I would spend a lot of time scanning local media and just reading these sort of snippets like that and thinking, there's such a bigger story here. There's such a human story here. I want to read it. And if it's not already out there, I, I want to try and tell it. Ellen, I'm sure you told some of those stories then. And then your book is a great way, it sounds like, to have gotten out some of the others you weren't able to weave into stories while you were there. Yeah, just notebooks and like just so many details that fell out of stories that I wanted to put somewhere. And I'm, I'm so glad that they were able to, to find life, yeah, in, in another, another form. Well, it's not something that I followed closely, but I feel like I've read in recent times that American journalists have been expelled from China. Is that right? That's right. And so another thing I would say about my time in China as a journalist and in writing this book, I left in 2018 and my, a number of my colleagues were kicked out from the country. And it, I mean, there were so many headlines, obviously, of course, and so I think might have gotten a bit lost, but it's just staggering. The It wasn't just our newspaper, it was correspondence from a number of major papers who were also kicked out, and just an incredible loss, right? It's already a country onto which we have such a limited view, and to lose that kind of knowledge and on-the-ground reporting is just, ah, uh, no, it's, it's just... In, in a year of awful headlines, that was a really, really horrible thing to see. And something that I, I think about so often, is just, I'm so grateful for the chance to have lived in China and to have been a reporter when I was. Things have changed so much. And, and the chance to have lived there and written these stories, I mean, it just does not exist anymore. I guess that's what I was thinking, too, was that your timing was very good. It sounds like going forward, at least for a little while, will be something that people aren't able to do. So it's wonderful that you were able to be there when you were. Yes. No, I'm, I'm, I'm so immeasurably grateful for that. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Sure. So these aren't recent. These are books that I've read long ago, but they're ones that I return to again and again. And so I always recommend Maylee Malloy's Half in Love, since we're talking about short stories. Her writing is just transparent and, and wonderful. And also recommend Leslie Arima's What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky which is another one of my favorite short story collections. And I think 
yeah, there's there's something to her writing, sort of the, the playful, magical realism, which you see in, in this collection, too. I love the second one. So she wrote all about Nigeria, and I enjoyed those stories. And they also, some of them had a little bit of a mystical bent to them, which I loved. I haven't thought about that book in a while, but I loved it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Deping. I really appreciate your taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for reading, and thank you so much for sharing. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Land Epic Numbers can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.